Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Talk about sleep today, and, and just thinking about that as, as I'm coming up here. I don't know what it's like for you when you sleep, but you know, you move from one state of, of kind of being to another state of being, like you're unconscious to conscious. And so I, I don't know what your dreams are like. My wife makes fun of me that my dreams are so vivid, and then I'll wake up and I don't realize they're not real until like a couple minutes after I'm awake. And so I'll be dreaming that I'm like dunking a basketball. I know I'm standing up on a stage right now. I'm 5'8. I can't dunk, just FYI. But I'll get out, I'll have been balling in my dreams. Like I'm going at it. And then I wake up and I'm like, that didn't happen? Oh, man. Go study. <laughs> Such a nerd. <laughs> At any rate. Um, but I'm moving from like one state of consciousness to another state of consciousness. It's an awakening. That's what revival is. We've been doing this series called Revival. Revival, some of you may have in your minds this, this picture that came of like a big tent and bring your friends that don't know Jesus and we're going to give them revival. Listen, revival is not for non-believers. You can't revive what was never alive. That's vivification, bringing to life. You can't revive, bring back to life something that was never alive. I was thinking about this series this week and some of this passage of Scripture that we're not going to preach in this series, but it's coming to my mind so many times. It's my favorite passage to preach when there's a funeral. It's John chapter 11. In fact, if I get the privilege, maybe I'll record it on video. If I got to preach my own funeral, it's the passage I would preach. Because what happens in this passage is Jesus shows up at a funeral. And the interesting thing is he was asked to come and heal the guy before the guy ever went, ever, ever died. And it was a friend of his, someone that he loved. His name was Lazarus. And Jesus got called by Mary and Martha, sisters who Jesus was also friends with, said, will you come? He doesn't go. He tells his disciples that's not going to end in death, but the guy dies. Jesus, do you not know? Do you not? Maybe you're not who we thought you were. Think about all the questions that would come in that situation. Then after a little while, Jesus says to his buddies, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And then they're, they're actually, here's my scholarly opinion of them. They're being a bunch of punks. They're like, we're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to die. We're, and they're thinking, well, I'm going to die. Like, we're not going to Jerusalem. But there's this one guy who steps up, and he says, let's go die with him. And if you haven't read the story, but you know some of the disciples, I, I, I guess in your mind, like, who do you think that was? Probably Peter, because he says stuff he doesn't know what he's talking about all the time, right? Or John, like John, read John's own book, probably some psychological stuff happening here. He loved Jesus more than everybody else, and Jesus loved him more, right? <laughs> Maybe it was him. No, it wasn't. It was a guy named Thomas. We always call him Doubting Thomas. Why don't we call him like Thomas the Triumph? Read John. If I'm Thomas in heaven, and you called me Doubting Thomas throughout your whole life, I'd be like, did you read John 11? I said, let's go die with them. Like, that's the kind of guy I want with me. Like, yeah, we might die, but you're with me. Before any of that happened, let me read you in John chapter 11 what Jesus said to them about that. In John chapter 11, verse 3, he says this. So the sisters, that's Mary and Martha, sent to him saying, Lord, the one, he whom you love, Lazarus, is ill. Reminding Jesus that he loves them like that's necessary. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But wait, the guy dies. And so then Jesus tells his buddies they're going to go together. In verse 11, he says this, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken. You might underline that. Awaken him if you're following along in John 11. I go to awaken him. It's up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. The disciples said to him, 
Lord, if he's falling asleep, he'll recover. And I don't know what was happening in that moment, but I picture, and I probably pick Philip because he counted like how much it would cost to feed everyone when the feeding of the 5,000 happened. You know, he's got his abacus out. He's, he's a nerd. And so he's like on WebMD, BlackBerry, because it was in the Bible before iPhones. And so he had a BlackBerry out and WebMD. If I'm Jesus, I'm just rolling my eyes. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was, taking, he was taking a nap. He was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. And then what happens after this is that Jesus gets in some really emotional conversations with Mary, with Martha. Jesus himself even gets emotional. He weeps, John 11:35. 35. But then what happens is that Jesus goes to the tomb. They roll away the stone. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. Because we have a God of resurrection. Amen? We have a God who has power over life and death. Amen? Because he's the God of awakening. And that's what we're talking about in revival is an awakening of our souls. Moving from one state, like some of us were sleeping, to another state. Oh, let's see the reality. That God doesn't want religion. He wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want us going through motions. He's real. His presence is real in our lives. He really cares about the sin in our lives. He's not just looking the other way, regardless of what your church might tell you. There's a wrath that's coming for sin, and he poured it out on his son, Jesus Christ. That's how much he loves you. Wake up to that. So today, we've called today's message, Awaken, or Awaken Our Souls. And the passage we're going to look at is not John 11. It's actually 2 Chronicles. I almost said it. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I think, and some people, you can debate this. I think 2 Chronicles is a book of revival. It's, the, it's where you get the passage, and you know, Americans, we misuse it because it wasn't promised to America, it was, it was in Israel. If my people will humble themselves and pray, I will hear their prayer, I'll hear their land. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. But what you have in Second Chronicles is a story of kings, some are up, some are down, and that's really the story of the nation. In fact, Second Chronicles is talking about the southern kingdom. See, the Old Testament gets real confusing at one point when the kingdoms break. Let me tell you real simply what's happened. The real context is the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? That's the book of Judges, not USA Today. Okay, because it could be talking about today. Where people called what was wrong right, called what was sin righteousness. And then do you know how foolish the people were? They thought, I know how we'll solve this. Give us the right political leader. We're talking about the Bible, FYI, that God wasn't reading your social media feed. And said, so give us Saul. He looks like he'll be a good king. He looks like he'll be a good king. And Saul becomes king. It doesn't go well. Give us David. Oh, David, the man, not perfect man, man after God's own heart, goes well. Then Solomon. Solomon's the third king of Israel. He starts off well. He fails miserably. He builds altars to false gods. He marries all these women to make political alliances. He compromises his integrity and his relationship with God for the sake of gain. That doesn't go well, by the way. And then the kingdom splits, and that's where the Old Testament starts to get confusing, because there's a northern kingdom that's still called Israel. There's a southern kingdom, it's called Judah, that's where Jerusalem is at. Second Chronicles is following the southern kingdom, and these kings that are in the line of David, and what you see is you get a bad king, and they take the nation to pot. You get a good king, and they bring them back to God. That's revival, and there's five of them in this book. We're looking at the fifth one, and he comes right after two of the worst kings. Manasseh, his grandfather, it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. They were worse than the pagan nations around them. 
He rules for 55 years. This guy's so bad, if you read through 2 Chronicles chapter 33, I'm not come pulling this out of some document you never found, it's in the Bible. He took two of his sons and sacrificed them in the fire. You say, that's so savage, that's so pagan. Let me tell you why. Because they believed if you sacrificed to this God, it would bring financial prosperity to your family. That's, that's today. See, some of us think that we're more sinful than ever before because there's a myth that's portrayed usually by the conservative right, by the way, and oftentimes in churches, that there was a time when everybody in our country loved God. That's never happened, FYI. That's a fear-mongering tactic. We've got to get back to that. That never existed, okay? In fact, if you read the Bible, we haven't created one single new sin. We work at perfecting them. We've never invented them. And so it was bad then. They're doing the same stuff we're doing. And then he, he dies after 55 years of reigning. And then Amnon becomes the next king. He only rules for two years because he's so bad his own people kill him. Second Chronicles 33:22. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. Amnon, Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. So things keep getting bad. What do you think their kid's going to be like? Juvenile delinquent. Terrible, right? How's God, how will God possibly awaken the world? Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. That's interesting that the chronicler would even say that because David existed hundreds of years before this guy. He's trying to portray him in a good light. His dad, Ammon. His grandfather, Manasseh. His father, David, it says right here, because he's portraying him as, as a godly man. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year, so he's 16 years old when this happens, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and metal images. Okay, that's great. So what? Right? I mean, so there's a kid. He loves God. That's great for him, probably nice for his home. You read through the whole chapter, and we don't have time to read every verse today, and so I'll trust that you can read the whole chapter and see some of the logistical details that happen. They decide to rebuild the temple. They find God's word. Look at verse 33. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days, they, not just him, the whole nation, did not turn away from following the Lord the God of their fathers. That's awakening. Why we look at this passage of Scripture? Here's why. Because I think, as we've been doing this series on revival, there's some of you that sit in your seats passively and you think to yourself, all right, well, what program is our church going to put on for us to have this revival? What person is God going to use? Who's the next Billy Graham? Or maybe there's a politician. Or maybe there's a pastor. And I want to tell you something. God has positioned some of you with your non-position to be in position to catalyze revival. Because here's why. God uses the unlikely to do the unexpected. Here he is. He takes an eight-year-old kid, and he's king. Okay, let me read you some examples, and we'll look at some. There's some in the Bible. There's some outside the Bible. I'm going to tell you some more modern ones that are outside the Bible right now before we jump back into Josiah of unlikely people that God used to catalyze revival. Okay? And I have my notes right here. I leaned over to my wife before I came up on stage. She goes, oh, I left these notes in the back. She goes, you better go get them. I got them. You can thank God for my wife right here, all right? In Wales, 
the Welsh Revival. It was a group of young people under seminary student Evan Roberts. He's a seminary student. Nobody knows who this guy is. Decides to start praying for revival. He prays that 100,000 people will come to Christ. It happens in six months. Just a seminary student. In the Hebrides Islands, that's in Scotland, two single household, housebound women in their 80s. So they get an eight-year-old here. Some of you are thinking, that's for young, that's for the college. It's always about college students when they're No. In their 80s, began to earnestly pray for revival. At the same time, on that island, seven young men met regularly to prevail in prayer until revival broke out. And you can look up that revival if you want to. In Korea, early 1900s, God spoke to the leaders of the church, so it was through the leaders this time, to revive them first, which then led to national awakening. In India, in a girls' school, think about that, in India, one leader started to pray that the students would get fired up for God, which triggered revival. I've told you about the Haystack Revival. It's five university students out in the field when there was a storm that came, and they began to pray. Listen, God uses unlikely people to do unexpected things. As we ask this question today, how, does, how is God going to catalyze revival? How does he bring revival? Well, God awakens the world through unlikely people. That's our first point today. God awakens the world through unlikely people. So no one could sit there today and think to themselves, not me. Maybe. You don't know. You look here at this passage of Scripture, and, and Josiah, he's eight years old when he becomes king. Like, we kind of read that sometimes, just go keep mo- moving past it. Do you know any eight-year-olds? <laughs> do you remember when you were eight years old? Like, I was thinking about, what stories do I remember from when I was eight years old? Every story I could think of from being eight years old is about me. It's a miracle I'm alive, okay? It's like, I know we lived in a different time. Like, we're super safety conscious now. When I was eight years old, like, my kids argue about who can ride in the front seat of the car, how old they have to be, how much they have to weigh. I don't remember ever not riding in the front seat of the car. Okay, we didn't have special seats. We didn't even have to wear seat belts, like, believe it or not. Like, some of you remember that? My seat belt was my mom. She starts to stop, boom, like, there it is. Like, you're not, you don't need no airbag. I got an arm. Like, you're good. Fancy cars with bags coming out of the dashboard. It's a different time. So I'm thinking about like story. I remember one time I was in the basement of my house and I picked up a hairpin and I thought, I wonder what would happen. It's got two prongs on it if I stuck it in that outlet. Right? Some of y'all, the only reason you're laughing is because you've done it. How else do you know what happened? So I'm like 50 pounds, right? And I walk over, boom! Yeah, that's what happens. And some of you are like, now I understand. Right? Now I get it. It's like, how did I even make it at eight years old? To be given, like, think about the authority we see kings in the Bible have. You remember Nehemiah goes before the king and he's afraid to be sad because the guy might cut his head off? Can you imagine being an eight years old? We had Halloween this week. I'm not going to ask you this Christian environment if you trick or treat or Let's just say you have a bunch of candy at your house and kids are eating a bunch of Kit Kats and a bunch of M&Ms. Stop eating the M&M. Off with his head. Like, eight year old, like, I'm just going to eat the M&Ms if I want to. And have no, like, thought of the consequences of that. Eight years old? And then some of y'all, you're going to start watching Home Alone here pretty soon. Maybe you started. My kids started watching Christmas movies last night. I'm like, what are you doing? It's not even Thanksgiving, but whatever. I'll just judge you. It's fine. <laughs> Do you know that, that Kevin McAllister is eight years old in that story? I don't want to ruin that movie for you, but he, like, um, Stops two infamous criminals in their community, goes grocery shopping. Uh, that would never happen. If you left, you can't even leave your kids in the car when you go in the grocery store. What do you think they're going to do to you if you go to a different country? 
You're going to jail, okay? And I'm going to be celebrating Christmas all happy. Oh, I'm so glad you did well, Kevin. It's like, oh, thank you, officer. Here I go. Somebody's going to die. Something's going to burn down. Like, eight years old. So he, he's unlikely because of his age. But he's not only unlikely because of his age, he's unlikely because of his ancestry. I mean, you go in here and it says, and if, if you don't think about what's actually happening here in the history of the Bible, you're like, oh, David was his father? Okay, the, no. Solomon was David's direct descendant that became king. And then he went sideways and everything fell off the rails. And if you read the passage, you see who his dad was. Ammon, he's worse than Manasseh. And the Manasseh, he was horrible. He killed. Manasseh bowed at the altar of prosperity. And Ammon, the altar of power. What do, you think, what do you think that this young man was learning in his house? It wasn't how to be a godly man. But, but we see this incredible thing that happens here. And here's just a side point. This isn't the main point of the message, but a side point. Is that your ancestry is not your destiny? Some of you sit there and you're like, Bible people, you're like, my old pastor, what about generational sin? Yeah, that's in the Bible. That is in the Bible. But there's a, there's a sin breaker in the New Testament. His name is Jesus and he can break those cycles. And so, you know, you, we see it. You don't just read it in the Bible. Like, you see somebody who's, you know, mom was in an abusive relationship, and she'd go from guy to guy with the and then you see the daughter that goes into an abusive relationship, guy to guy, and it's like, why are you doing that? And it's like, you said it's the sin cycle that we see that happens. There's, dad's an alcoholic, and then the son becomes an alcoholic, and somebody's got an anger issue, and somebody else has an anger issue. And you're like, why does this just seem to be happening? And there's this, like, sin cycle that happens. And let me tell you something. You may have grown up in a home that had some of that stuff. It can stop with you. Romans chapter 6 says that we're not slaves to sins. We'd be slaves to righteousness. Romans chapter 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your ancestry is not your destiny. Jesus is, if you know Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the sin breaker. And so some of you grew up in materialistic homes. By the way, that doesn't mean you have to be rich. That just means that stuff is the most important thing. And you start to get owned by stuff. Well, you can be a person that that shows that you own the stuff and you hold it all open-handedly. And whether you have a bunch or whether you have a little, it doesn't matter. You've got Jesus. It breaks that cycle. Some of you divorce. It's, like a, it's just like epidemic throughout your, your, the lines of your generation. Well, why don't you show what it's like to be faithful, even if the other person's not faithful, to be a promise keeper, a covenant keeper, even when they don't do everything you want them to do, even when they don't do the stuff they promised to do. Just break these cycles. Some, some of you have been abused sexually. Don't abuse someone. Some of you, all this alcohol, all, these, all this mess that happens. Jesus is a sin breaker. He breaks the cycle of generational sin here with Josiah. He can break it in your life through you. Let me read you Romans chapter 8. I said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. Here's verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, that's the only way this is going to happen. We sang about the Holy Spirit this morning. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And here's the thing, God might use you for revival for your family tree for generations. We had last week, we had three different people that said they made a, a decision to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Three ladies, different stories, different races, different ages. It was awesome to see that because you never know how that's going to change a family. And that might just change a whole generation of people. could change generations of people. But here's the reality. God might do that through you because he uses the unlikely to do the unexpected. No matter if you're 8 or 80, 
doesn't matter about your age, doesn't matter what your background was, your ancestry, Jesus Christ can break through and change all that stuff. And you say, well, this, yeah, but pastor, you're just grabbing this one passage out of this Old Testament text that nobody reads. Maybe it's, you know, it's what Bible people call eisegesis. Well, okay, then test the Scriptures with me and think through. Does God oftentimes use unlikely people to do unexpected things? Uh, he started off, by the way, how He created, when you just read Genesis chapter 1, it's a Latin phrase that, that Bible scholars use called ex nihilo. Do you know what that means? Out of nothing. He used nothing to create everything. Do you know why? He gets all the glory. Not little, not that it wasn't just like this single cell molecule and it wasn't like a little bit of Play-Doh. <laughs> Nothing. And then he calls a guy named Abraham. It wasn't because Abraham had a bunch of land God wanted to use. I'll give you the land. It wasn't because, hey, Abraham, you got a lot of talented kids. I'm going to use some of those kids. No, you can't even have kids. You're infertile. I'm going to give you a kid when nobody else thinks you can have a kid because God takes the unlikely and does the unexpected. And then there's this guy named Moses. He takes Moses. Moses is 80 years old when he gets called by God. Did you know that? And when he gets called, if you read in Exodus chapter 3, he gives all the reasons why that he's not, I, I stutter, I can't speak. What is it? Do you know what he doesn't say, which I find incredibly interesting? I'm a murderer. <laughs> uh, there's a reason why he spent 40 years on the backside of a desert. He was hiding because of murder. And then God's going to know this man face to face like a friend and use him to lead the first revival we see in the Bible, and take these people out of bondage. And then you go, and like, so then you got Saul, and he doesn't do well, and then Dave, when David gets picked to be king, God goes to a guy named Samuel and says, I want you to go anoint the next king. Go to Jesse, and he goes to Jesse, and Jesse brings all of his kids out, except for David, because David's so unlikely, but God picks the unlikely and does the unexpected. Okay, what about his son Jesus coming, coming to this earth? There's all these ways that we would expect it to happen, but not through a 14-year-old girl in a nothing town in the middle of Nazareth, but God uses the unlikely to do the unexpected. And then Jesus comes, he lives this perfect life that none of us could live, dies on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God, paying the penalty, the wages of sin is death, what you earn because of your sin is separation from God, and that wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross, then after he raises from the dead, he starts this movement called the church. Now, if I'm going to start a movement, I'm not picking fishermen and tax collectors. But God does. And then there's this guy who's the chief persecutor of that movement. His name's Saul, later called Paul. He oversees the imprisonment of Christians, oversees the death of the first martyr in the church. So murder, imprisonment. If you're going to pick somebody to plant some churches, probably not Paul. But he writes the majority of the New Testament, starts a bunch of churches, because God picks the unlikely to do the unexpected. What about you and why? Because I'm going to go back to that passage in John chapter 11 when Jesus told the disciples, this illness will not lead to death. It says, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, whom you love is ill. The one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's a reason why Lazarus doesn't go on a speaking tour after he's raised from the dead, because the story was really about Jesus. Because when God uses unlikely people like you and like me, he gets the glory. And that's the real reason for revival, by the way. The real reason for revival is not merely social reform. Oh, our country needs revival. 
the real reason for revival is not so you can be a better version of yourself, but we need revival. The real reason for revival is the glory of God. Rend the heavens. Were you here last week? Shake the mountains. Why? That your adversaries might know your name. It's the fame of your name. So how unlikely people? How else? He does it by revealing himself through his word. God awakens the world by revealing himself through his word. And what happens here in this passage, that there's so many verses to read, we didn't, we didn't read all of them, is that, that, you know, Josiah here at 16 years old decides to start seeking God. At 18 years old, in the 10th year of his reign, he decides it's a good idea to rebuild the temple. Here's why, rebuild the temple. A temple is where God's, now God's omnipresent in the Old Testament, omnipresent in the New Testament, but there's what's known as his manifest presence. So you experience his presence. And his presence is a big deal. And so you read like Matthew, and it says that Jesus is Emmanuel. That's God with us. That's his presence. You know how that book ends? Go make disciples. That's your one job. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and I'm with you. Wasn't he with everybody all the time? Yeah. He's always present. But we don't always experience his presence because some of us are asleep. But there's this manifest presence when we experience his presence. That's what we are singing about today that we realize he is with us. And so he wants to rebuild the temple because he wants people to experience the manifest presence of God. And so they go in. It's been 57 years since people have been going to the temple to worship at the temple. And so they start renovating the temple. And he's hiring different people and having them do different jobs. During the demo project, Chip's in there, or somebody, it's a Bible name, I don't know who it is. Somebody's in there, demo day. They're tearing stuff apart. They find this old book. And they come and they read it to the king, and they realize it's the Bible. And so Josiah had probably heard truth from the Bible because and it's not written down in, the, in these passages about his life, but he existed at the same time as Jeremiah the prophet, Zephaniah the prophet. And so you can read any verses in those books and say, he may have heard that sermon, but now he's got a copy of the Scripture for himself. And look at chapter 34 and verse 19, what he does. And when the king heard the words of the law, probably from Deuteronomy, he tore his clothes. Can you imagine if you had never read the Bible before, and then somebody showed you this book, and you realize this book is written by the almighty creator who created out of nothing, and you realize what he says to do is not what I'm doing. There's one of two responses in that moment. Who are you to tell me? That's a proud heart. God opposes the proud. That means he fights against you. There's another response. Woe is me. And I'm going to change. That's a humble heart. God gives grace to the humble. Look at what it says to him in uh, chapter 34 and verse 27. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you've humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. In other words, I'll hold back my wrath. That's grace, grace for the humble. Now listen, so imagine, put yourself in the story, and imagine 
you hear the Word, you 60 years, no one's been talking about the Word, 57 years, it's been locked up, hidden in this place, and so you're, you know, you're somewhere between 18, 20-some years old, and someone brings you the Bible and reads it to you, and you're wrecked. And then, and then you realize, even though you haven't been doing the stuff that's in the book, once you heard the truth, just because you were humble about it, God's going to be gracious with you? What would you do? Wouldn't you want to know more about that God? Wouldn't you pursue? Wouldn't you seek? Wouldn't you go after knowing more about that God? And you know, that's what you see about people that experience revival, is they want more. They go, on, they go seeking God. And remember when he was summarized, his life was summarized back in verse 3, in the eighth year of his reign, he saw God. He began to seek God. And so here's what happens in our lives. When, we, when God starts to reveal himself through his word, is we start to pursue him. And you see that seeking God all through the Bible is incredibly important. It's central to our faith. Now, some of us think, like some of you are under this misperception. Maybe somebody told you, like, let go, let God, or some bumper sticker statement about your faith, that, like, your, your Christian journey is some passive thing. Or it's like, I asked God to make me want to like him, and he didn't, so I guess he doesn't want me to. And you're like, passive, like I'm going to pray this prayer, and some magical thing is going to happen. No, it's a relationship. And like any relationship, it requires action that we pursue him. And the reality is we're all on a pursuit all the time. And every, almost everybody who like studies people knows this. It's why like if almost all the movies that are successes have something to do with a pursuit, a journey. You go after something. You can go after love. You can go after the truth. You can go after like a criminal, like the new Jack Ryan series came out. Some of you watch that. Or the classics like Raider of the Lost Ark. You're going after a treasure. Maybe trying to find a conspiracy. Trying to find an identity, the Born Identity series. Yeah, you're going after, like, what is it? Like, pick, pick your favorite movies. A bunch of the movies are about pursuing something, reconciling. There's always this journey that takes place that we go after. Why? Because we're all in a pursuit. Our founding fathers knew it. If this is an inalienable right, life, liberty, and the pursuit. Why don't it just say happiness? Because they know we're not all going to find it. Here's why we don't find it. Because many of us go after false saviors. And that's what's happening in Israel. But imagine you find the one that truly satisfies. Do you know what happens then? You want more. I keep coming. It's like David says. Remember, he's, he's, he's connected with David in this passage. David, his father, yeah, well, a long time ago. And David, when his throne was being threatened and his son Absalom was trying to kill him, he flees out in the desert. And Psalm 63 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. He doesn't say he wants water. Which reminds me of the story in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes to a well. And there's a woman there that's coming for water. And Jesus says to her, I'm living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. And she says, I want that water. Yeah, we all do. Everybody wants that. But then it's interesting, the conversation turns to her sin. And Jesus says to this woman, the man that you're with right now, he's not your husband. In fact, you've had multiple husbands. In other words, your false savior is men. And you think a man's going to deliver satisfaction in your life. Now, if you or I came up to the well, he might have said something different. It might have been like the rich young ruler. Why don't you get rid of all your money? Because he knows that his false savior was money and security. And he might say to some of you, oh, are you willing to leave your family? Because you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing, and that becomes, that's what the Bible calls an idol. See, idols aren't just for these savages that make these statues. It's anything that we place above God. 
You know what David said when he was out in the wilderness in a dry and weary land where there is no water? I want you. Because he knows that only God satisfies. I said, well, that's, that's the Old Testament. Let me read you a central passage in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Some of you might know half of this verse. I wonder if you know all the verse. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Okay, most of us know that part. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, that come after him. Earlier in Second Chronicles, the first revival that happens in that book comes through a guy that I bet none of us have ever heard of. He's only mentioned in that passage. Second Chronicles chapter 15, and he speaks to the king because it doesn't come through the king. It comes through someone else that spurs on the king. It says, if you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Many of us know Jesus' own lips. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. And then the right, God will take care of the details. That's my paraphrase of the rest of that passage. But you go after him. Make him a priority because that's what happens when we start to pursue him. He becomes a priority in our lives. I was listening to another preacher preach from Haggai this week, and he talked a little bit about revival uh, his name's Tony Evans. I was working out, by the way, if you're ever listening for a preacher, like thinking who to listen to, listen to Tony Evans while you're working out. It's great. Like, it's a great workout. He's, he's preaching, okay? I'm talking to you. He's like, come on, people. He's preaching Haggai. And he's talking about how God needs to be priority. And God wasn't priority for them. He said, and God wants first. Firstborn, first of the crops, first fruits, give the first of your wealth, you've forsaken your first love. Like he goes through all that stuff. He said, and you know when you turn from sin, but how do you know you've returned to God? And he said, you know you've returned to God when he comes first, but how do you know if you haven't? And do you know what he said the answer was? Because you're dissatisfied. Because here's what was happening in Haggai. The people had money. The people had clothes. The people had food, but they never had enough. And some of you know what that's like. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it won't be enough. It doesn't matter how secure you are, it won't be secure enough. It doesn't matter all the things that you, all the idols you, God will let you have your idol, but he won't let you have satisfaction. That's how you know he's not first. Why do you think that Paul says in the Bible in Philippians chapter four, I have learned the secret of contentment? Do you know how that happens? Trial and error. I've learned. Why does Paul say in Philippians, same book, I want to know you? He's a Christian because he's still seeking. There's more of you to know. And I've learned, and here's a guy who knows what it's like to be in the palace, knows what he's, he's had Lydia, she's wealthy, and, and been with her. He's been shipwrecked and floating out at sea, had nothing. And he knows the secret of contentment. It's Jesus because he's the only one that will satisfy. But we're prone to wander we go away, we might know true things, we might even be people that God uses in significant ways, but that's why I love that passage in John 21. Jesus restores Peter, they're on the, the Sea of Galilee, they're walking along, and Jesus has just told Peter, here's what's gonna happen in your life. Wouldn't it be awesome if God would just tell you? No, probably not, because then we wouldn't have faith. We'd be like, I don't know, God's plan, my plan, I'm still debating. But Peter knows, this is how you're gonna die. This is what's gonna happen. Then this other guy comes walking up, John. He goes, what about that guy? And that, that's like us on social media. Hey, how come they're on that vacation? Hey, wait, 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 I didn't get invited to that. That looks like good food. How come we never have that? You know, that's why Christians struggle so much to rejoice with those who rejoice. We can mourn with those who mourn because we're not happy. But rejoicing, you can do that when you're content. When you're not content, it's because Jesus isn't first. It doesn't matter about the circumstances. You know what Jesus says to Peter in that story? You follow me. 
Because when our eyes are on our Savior, we're not shaken by our circumstances. When our eyes are not on our Savior, we're blown and tossed like Peter trying to walk on water. And we doubt and we sink. But not only do we pursue, not only do we become a priority, but you go back to verse 3, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, it means there's going to be a purging. When God reveals himself through his words, the very thing we saw in verse 19, it's the very thing we saw in verse 27. If we're going to have a humble heart before God, he's going to strip some things away. He's going to strip some less of us, more of him. He's going to strip some self. He's going to strip sin away. And what happens is we start to feel the weight of our sin. It's not just that sin's no big deal. We start to see it the way that he sees it. That's what confession is. But then we also see the glory of a Savior, Jesus Christ. I was watching a video of a guy. He recently wrote a book. His name's Beckett Cook. And he was talking about how he lived in L.A., a gay man in L.A., active part of the LGBTQ community. He said, I'm sitting in a coffee shop. I look over and I see some Bible sitting on a table. He said he lived in L.A. for 15 years, had never seen a Bible out in public. I'm like, oh, poor L.A. <laughs> Go to Caribou Coffee, Solo, whatever. But his friend said, his friend likes stirring stuff up. I said, why don't you talk to him? So he starts talking to these Christians, he guess. He said, are you guys Christians? Do those Bibles mean you're Christians? They said, yeah. He said, I grew up Catholic, but I don't, I don't know the gospel. Can you tell me what you believe? <laughs> like, as a Christian, can you imagine that? If you said no, please stop coming to church here, like in that situation. Like, can you tell me what you believe? And so, you know, they said, here, here's what we believe. We believe that we've all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. And the penalty for our sins is death, but Jesus took that penalty at the cross, and he rose from the dead, and he offers life to any who will receive it. Like I talked about those three ladies who received it last week. I'll give you an opportunity to receive it here in just a minute. He heard that, and he goes, well, I, then I asked them the $64,000 question, and that, as a gay man, this is the biggest question. He goes, is homosexuality a sin? And he said, and they told me it is. And I appreciated their honesty. And then they invited me to church. And then the interviewer said, was it a struggle? He's like, well, I know, I thought about it, going to church or not going to church, but I went to church, and I came in, they were meeting at a school, and I heard this Christian music, and I went into this room and listened to the singing, and the pastor got up and he was preaching from Romans chapter 7. Don't want to sin, but then sin's there and I still sin. He goes, he preached for an hour. He said, I was caught on every phrase, every word. It was like he was speaking to me. Then he said afterwards, he said, if you want to go pray with somebody, there's people off to the side, you can go pray with somebody. And then they started singing. He goes, they sang for 25 minutes after he preached. He had never been in this environment before. He said, and I went over, I said, I didn't even know what I believed. And I walked up to this guy that was there to pray. And I said, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't know what I believe. But will you pray for me? And he said, then the guy put his hands on my shoulders. He goes, that was weird. <laughs> and he said, this guy started praying for me. He said, it was such a powerful prayer, such a loving prayer. And he said, and I was thinking to myself, how can a straight man love me like that? I said, I went over to my seat and they're singing songs. He goes, I started bawling. He said, not crying. Like people around me were wondering, what's wrong with this guy? Trying to console me. And he said, I was weeping because I saw my sin for what it is. But he said it was mostly tears of joy, though, because I saw my Savior for who he is. Because in that moment, God said to me, I am God, Jesus is my son, you're adopted into my family. And he trusted Christ. So his heart melted because of sin. But then there was joy and relief because of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of you need that today. And I think about people who'd read this passage well before any of that stuff was part of their culture. 
but they had all the same sins. They had people and gay lifestyles. They had people killing their kids for the sake of prosperity. Like I think to myself, if you read the account of Kings, and the First and Second Kings uh, tells a lot of the same stories that First and Second Chronicles does. And so if you're reading the Bible, sometimes you're like, did I just read this? You're like, yeah, here it is. And they'll give different details. It's kind of like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And what ends up happening in, in Kings is you see some of the gods that were actually removed. One of them was a god named Moloch. Moloch was the god that you sacrificed children to. It happened in a valley, sometimes referred to as the Valley of Gehenna. Uh, Jesus refers to it in the New Testament when he's trying to give people a picture of what hell is like. Where the flame doesn't go out, worm doesn't die, eternal punishment, and he refers to the worst place you can imagine. In that time, by the time of Jesus' day, they burned garbage and dead bodies there. But, but in this time, like, can you imagine being one of the young couples who sacrificed one of your children, and then there's revival, and these gods are removed? And you come and you read a passage like this and remember, yeah, the whole nation did start following God, but I remember what I did before that. And you picture going to the valley where there's this huge statue that's got a bull head on it and a human body, but a big opening in the belly because that's where you inserted your children. That's where the fire was at. It had forearms that were out. That's how you got up there. You walked up the forearms, put the child in so you could bring their drums playing. They say the drums were playing for worship music, but maybe just to cover up the cries of the kids. And can you imagine, like, thinking about that sin, but then realizing because you humbled your heart before God that he forgave that sin? Some of you here, you think about the worst sin that you've ever done, sins you maybe never told anybody, maybe abortion, maybe murder, maybe abuse. Things that have been done to you you're so ashamed of, and God says, I'll forgive that. I want you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you have to have a humble heart before him. And some of you, he's calling you, just like Jesus was calling Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out. It's time for some of you to come out of bondage, to come out of sin, to wake up to what God has for you.